sword. That was a Molly find this week. Thanks to the internet for sharing those kids who are great spellers. Uh, did that kid say pit? Did the kid say peanut butter? Yeah, he proudly spelled the word Nutella, and and it spelled peanut butter. He's he's getting there. He's got the letters down, just maybe not the the reading part. Welcome everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us for another reading meeting with Mark and Molly. Taking time out of your Sunday. If you don't know me, uh, I'm Molly Ferry Thorne. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at UW Madison, working with Mark. It's right here. It's right here. Hi, I'm Mark. <laughs> yes. Um, and today we have uh, Dr. Nadine Gab joining us to talk about all things early literacy screening, probably some dyslexia, all sorts of things she's an expert in. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to mention, in case you don't know or your friends don't know. Um, these recordings are going up on YouTube and you can get to those from the reading meeting website, the seidenbergreading.net. Um, and I am now also putting the recordings up as podcasts, just the audio, because we usually don't have very many slides or anything. Um, and so that is also linked to on the website if you wanna download, somebody was saying they're gonna do dishes and listen. So definitely check those out, share those widely for people who might be interested after you listen with us. Um, but yeah, without further ado, let's have Ms. Dr. Nadine Gab introduce herself. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Uh, thank you, Mark. It's good to see you again. And thank you, Molly, for organizing this. Um, so I'm uh, Nadine Gab, and I'm currently an associate professor of education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And my work really uh, lies at the intersection of uh, neuroscience and education um, with a strong focus on typical and atypical language and reading trajectories. Um, we will be starting to look at math and arithmetic trajectories as well soon. Uh, we also are really dedicated to um, dissemination of the work we do. So whatever we do, we really think about how could that uh, inform education? How could we translate that back into the classroom? What is needed in order for it to go back into the classroom? And also we think a lot about policy and what are the you know, bigger pictures that need to change? What is the systems level change that we need in order to you know, address and make sure that every child can you know, uh, enjoy learning to read and, and, and you know, have the maximum of their potential. So a perfect guest for us, doing this bridging science to practice already. So uh, Nadine, I mean, maybe we could just start the discussion around um, children who uh, struggle to learn to read and um, the idea that some of them have uh, a condition or conditions that interfere with their ability to benefit from certain kinds, kinds of instruction perhaps and that um, uh, this is, uh, these kinds of conditions can be identified um, and uh, with early screening and early identification, uh, they can be given experiences that um, are targeted in appropriate ways to help keep them on the rails, keep them going and, and so on. So, you know, from my perspective, there's been decades of research on dyslexia and related conditions 
because of work by you and, and others. More recently, we know a lot about um, the brain bases of, 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 of these um, conditions. Um, and yet in, in education is really hugely controversial. And um, I guess, uh, so it's hugely controversial, isn't it? Um, and, and I guess some preliminary discussion about, well, why is this an, what is odd about, what is so difficult to, about this idea or, or what, what is it that is um, problematic about this uh, idea that there might be conditions that actually interfere with reading and therefore um, require attention um, and, and uh, ed educational uh, intervention. Could, could you say a little bit about that from your perspective? Yeah, yeah. So we clearly right now have a way to fail model in the schools. And, um, um, you know, what that means is that we largely have a child struggle first and have more of a reactive model. So we wait till someone is showing up with a problem. And when they do, we're trying to be active instead of having a more proactive model uh, where we are trying to identify the ones who will most likely struggling with learning to read or some other conditions, right? So I think it's really important to, to understand this distinction. Um, there have been a number of initiatives and policies, you know, in the last 20 plus years that dealt with this. So we had the National Reading Panel and the No Child Left Behind Act and you know, uh, Individuals with Disability Education Act. Um, but the, the, the percentage of children not reading on grade level has not changed since, you know, at least 1992, if you look at the NAP um, 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 data. And so um, we think that we need to start thinking outside of the box and we need to really think like, you know, what is it that we can do in order to make sure that not you know, 65% uh, of uh, fourth graders are not reading on grade level. Um, and so um, we are really um, thinking about you know, a, a larger model where you do have early screening and we know that you have you know, a number of you know, skills that you, you know, that, you know, or literally uh, literacy milestones that you need by age four or five uh, that really predict uh, who will be a good reader and who will be a poor reader. And so we have these. Um, and so the question is, why are we not, you know, implementing a more proactive model and finding the ones that are, you know, on the, if you think about reading of a continuum that are falling, you know, or are more likely to fall into the, the area of, you know, severe word reading. Um, yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah, so what, just following up on what you said, you know, the reactive model is um, a kid has to fail enough for, to get the attention. And then, you know, it's, it's late. The, the child's problem is identified late and it's very hard to catch up. It is very hard, not impossible. It's just very difficult when the child has already fallen behind, they've already become, um, reading has become emotionally uh, a, a, a negative thing. Um, uh, even identifying a kid in second or third grade, that's late. 
developmentally. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about before kids get to school, kindergarten, first grade, what you're as the, yeah, I mean, as the if you, yeah, if you, if you, we really recommend at least right now, four and five year olds. So really like late preschool, early kindergarten. And, yeah. uh, you know, we do have the, the research is there. We know exactly, you know, what are the predictors of later, you know, a typical reading outcome? What are the predictors of severe word reading? Uh, we, we know these, uh, they have been shown in longitudinal studies over and over again, but somehow yeah. this knowledge doesn't make it into the education system. And, you know, I you know, really like your question, like why? Um, and, you know, you know, maybe we could explore that together today. Yeah, so um, maybe we could talk about what some of those predictors are because, um, and then, um, so here's the, the idea is, um, there are some um, um, things that children learn and, and skills that children um, develop. Um, and um, uh, there are specific ones that um, are highly related to their progress in learning to read and for which there's variability. You can find children who might be uh, behind or who might be um, uh, need, need additional, need, need, be at risk. And so, um, uh, uh, let, let's just talk for a moment about um, what those factors are and also the goals of screening. I mean, is it given um, that these are little kids and we're, we're measuring, you know, um, uh, a small number of um, um, behaviors, telltale kinds of behaviors, um, is the goal to just identify kids who might be falling off the rails, kids who might have a condition that's interfering with reading? Do you care whether they have a condition that underlie, underlying identifiable by a neurobiological condition or are, what is the goal of the screening and what are the factors that we're talking about? Yeah, no, okay. So uh, to get to your first question, so the, you know, what are the predictors of, you know, uh, reading outcomes? So we, one is the you know, classical one, phonological phonemic awareness, which is the ability to manipulate the sounds of language. Uh, and so this is really important, but also it's important to keep in mind that this has a developmental progression, right? So it's not that, you know, and the you know, uh, preschool, you're, you know, being able to uh, uh, take a middle sound out of a, you know, three syllable word. So it you know, may start with rhyming, there's maybe first sound matching, and then it, it goes on and on. Um, it's important to keep in mind that you know, not all children who have deficits in phonological awareness also will develop into struggling readers and the other way around, right? Not all struggling readers show deficits in phonological awareness, uh, uh, phonemic awareness. The other aspects, uh, one interesting other aspect or component is uh, nonword repetition. So it really taps into this uh, short-term verbal, you know, phonological memory, uh, which is basically you give the child a word and they have to repeat the word back to you. And these are made up words like body kuba or something like this. And uh, so you can really measure 
you know, is there short-term memory and do they, you know, have the sequence of the sounds correct uh, and can they repeat it correctly? So it has a lot of, you know, components uh, in this, you know, uh, short task. Um, another important part is uh, print awareness and uh, mapping uh, print onto the sounds of language. So letter sound knowledge, uh, letter names, um, uh, and then uh, also, um, you know, people have suggested rapid automatized naming as an, a strong predictor. Although research has shown that it primarily predicts reading fluency, so rapid automatized naming is, you know, basically the ability to um, name um, objects or colors or letters uh, very rapidly. And it's important to keep in mind that these objects are high frequency words. So these are things that you encounter every day. These are words that you say every day. And so the idea here is how quickly can you retrieve these high frequently, high frequency words from memory, uh, which is a good predictor of reading fluency. The other important you know, section is if you think about the Scarborough rope, right, where you have the mechanics of reading on the bottom and the oral language on the top, and both components are important and feed into successful reading acquisition. You also want to look for these oral language um, components such as vocabulary or syntax or uh, listening comprehension. And it's really easy to understand why, right? So you can be the best decoder in the world if you don't comprehend or understand or know the meaning of the words that you decode, that will slow you down. That will slow down your fluency, but it also will you know, impact your comprehension greatly. So it's important that when you think about screening, about assessment, about you know, diagnostics, about intervention, that you keep like a comprehensive multifactorial model in mind and not just say, oh, I'm just focusing on you know, phonological awareness because you know, there's many different factors that interact with the environment, with genetics uh, that can then uh, influence uh, reading outcomes. Uh, in terms of screening, um, we really think uh, as screening as something that you can compare with uh, what is done in medicine, right? So we embrace the preventive model in medicine. We really do, right? So just as a patient at risk for heart disease should be screened and monitored over time uh, and should receive like intervention necessarily to prevent uh, him or her developing heart disease, so too should you know, children at risk for reading disabilities be identified uh, prior to the onset of struggling and uh, receive uh, what they need in order to become a successful reader. So it's very similar, right? So you screen for high cholesterol of someone, you give them what they need. And the idea is that they never develop you know, heart disease. The same with, with reading, right? So you screen, you see, you identify the children at risk, um, and you then um, um, uh, um, identify, you know, give them what they need uh, in order for them not develop it. And so it's important to keep in mind that we are not you know, trying to diagnose four-year-olds with dyslexia, right? So we are trying to identify the ones who are mostly gonna struggle or you know, a, a greater risk for struggling. Um, and we are also not trying to overcrowd special education, right? So the idea is that you can do this with really good tier one instruction, right? So ideally that preventive model is, you know, 
it has to be tied to, to good tier one instruction, the good tier uh, uh, to uh, a tier two instruction. So a screening test can um, not tell that a child will subsequently develop dyslexia, rather it determines the likelihood that a child will develop dyslexia. So that was so, gonna uh, really, yeah. We, I think we really need to be clear about this. So um, one thing you said was we're not trying to diagnose kids with dyslexia. Um, and, and I think that's true. I mean, kids aren't dyslexic until you really, I mean, uh, it, it will take longer to figure out exactly more precisely what the underlying uh, issues are for for a given kid, though, you know, they're going to tend to be a small number of things that are, 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 are involved. But um, the, the idea of diagnosing definitively a kid who's four or five years old as having a condition of a condition called dyslexia that's going to interfere with reading, um, they may well and um, be kids who um, we will eventually identify as uh, dyslexic. But in the four or five-year-old range, it's not a question of diagnosis. It's a question of identifying kids who are at risk. Mm -hmm. And there are factors that will place kids at risk and the, that can be addressed. And uh, some of those kids will turn out to um, progress rapidly. And some of those kids will uh, turn out to have um, uh, be uh, more affected and, and uh, have greater greater struggles. I, I think it's really important to, that we kind of talk about this idea of we need to identify kids who are exhibiting behaviors that are um, strongly associated with difficulties in reading. And we're casting a fairly broad net in the sense that, you know, given that there are four or five-year-olds and there's variability in developmental curves, and that you know, some kids who are gonna be just fine in terms of reading um, develop some of these skills more rapidly or less rapidly than some others. The best that we can do in this range is identify kids who are at risk because it's important to address the issues early and appropriately. And would you, would you agree, you know, a screening test is gonna bring in, is gonna, is gonna identify some kids who would, are gonna turn out just fine if they get reasonable instruction. Um, uh, and, and other kids who behaviorally look very similar, but um, actually those kids are much, at much higher risk because underlyingly they really are um, having more difficulty. Uh, they may indeed have um, conditions that are interfering with reading. And so in this age range, the, it's not a question of diagnosis. It's a question of deciding who's at risk and addressing it appropriately. Yeah, yeah, Mark, I agree with this. So a screener really should be like brief and reliable and, and valid, right? So it's it's not a diagnostic comprehensive battery. And but I think we we came a long way with you know just you know identifying what a screener should you know do and what it shouldn't do and what it should have and there's you know wonderful people that work on this uh, including Jakob Petcher and others and you know if if you know we have like um, places like the National Center for Intensive Intervention who has the tools chart who really you know can help you identify like 
you know, what is the right screener for my population? Uh, you know, is it norm for the population of interest? Uh, what is the scope of assessment? What is its sensitivity and specificity? What is its classification accuracy? You know, how reliable, how valid is it? So it's really important that we also not just, you know, take a screener that, you know, walks into the door or that someone had developed 30 years ago that worked, you know, for them. It's really important that we start, you know, um, putting the science uh, into this, uh, you know, identification process and really, you know, using instruments that are well designed and, and also matching them to the population because the screener in a certain, you know, district may work well, but it may not work in another district. So I think uh, there, there are a lot of questions around that since there are so many companies and uh, groups um, there's competition in the screener market at this point. And um, I guess um, maybe, uh, could you expand a little bit about the issue of you know, the appropriateness of the screener? So um, we've talked previously in these discussions about the fact that you know, there are educational materials and activities that um, work well for some kids and work less well for others because of differences, for example, in um, accent or dialect or um, ways that kids speak. So, you know, uh, their activities, their um, uh, uh, instructional practices, there are examples that are used um, to teach kids that actually don't work for certain children in the intended way because they're mismatched to the child's language. And the same issue is going to arise, obviously, with screeners. How well are we doing in terms of being able to screen very young children in, you know, who only are able to, you know, who, who behave like young children and, uh, uh, they're, and, and, and using, um, um, you know, materials that don't take a vast amount of time to, to, to um, administer and um, yield um, data that are, have this kind of reliability you're talking about. How well are we doing in terms of the appropriateness of the screeners for different populations? Yeah, I think we still have to, you know, work on this for sure. Um, but there are, you know, a series of screeners out there, and there are, you know, okay screeners out there. What I was more referring to was, um, you know, you want to make sure that the, your screener is norm for the population you have, right? So if you are, you know, have a mixed inner city population, you may not want to choose a screener that's normed on 300, you know, upper class, you know. UK educated preschoolers, um, but um, as, as an example, right? So you wanna make sure that, you know, you have, um, you know, the, the, the population of interest, but also that you have good classification, you know, accuracy for your, um, 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 for your, your population. And I think that's something we really need to, you know, focus on, especially when it comes to English language learners and, as you said, dialect speakers, um, uh, et cetera. Yeah, so um, uh, you know, there's this idea of differentiated instruction that everyone's familiar with. And, and um, where it, it seems to me we, we, we should also be talking about a differentiated assessment where you know, the assessment is really tied to um, particular populations or um, um, kids from different kinds of backgrounds and, uh, and, and similarly a differentiated screening where you know, it's not 
the screening materials are going to have to be tweaked and adjusted so that they are valid for the population they're being used with. And um, I do think that's asking a lot and um, that there's uh, probably, there's certainly gonna be room to um, do better than we are. You know, so now that we have lots of people on the screening, interested in screening, we need to be really, really careful about how effective these uh, screeners are for um, particular groups. Um, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's also really important, Mark, that there is now a movement that, um, you know, things that, you know, an easy screener may be just giving a, you know, 10, 12 question survey to the parent or to the teacher to determine if a child is at risk. And I think um, that may be the fastest, but it's maybe not the most accurate one, right? Because you can introduce a really significant bias with this. Uh, just imagine, you know, you do this in the first three weeks of kindergarten and uh, you, the teacher, you know, didn't even, you know, have the chance to, or doesn't even have the chance to really get to know these kindergarten class if you have, let's say, 18 or 25 kindergarten students. And then the screener asks you, like, do you think, you know, this kid knows all his or her letters? So you can have implicitly or explicitly have a strong bias saying like, well, you know, given the, the parents and the preschool he came from, he probably knows all of his letters, right? Without directly assessing it. And the same can go the other way around. So I think it's also really important that we you know, assess the child directly in order to determine whether he or she is at risk uh, and not just rely on parent or uh, a, a teacher uh, surveys. And again, can we talk really about, you know, Kids are showing up on the first day of kindergarten at in uh, very different um, their ability to benefit from instruction differs because they their their knowledge of language their knowledge of the world their knowledge of what we used to call pre-reading skills um, but you know things like letter names and associated sounds and so on is is really not the same as some other kids and so. You know, if we're talking about kids who are already behind in things that are highly predictive of what's going to happen next and their ability to, to move ahead, um, that suggests looking at things that are happening before the kid gets to school. So um, is that your view? I mean, that we're really talking about pre-K, we're talking about knowing about children's spoken language, knowing about their knowledge of letters, letter names, letter sounds. Um, uh, uh, how, how it, it seems to me that we do actually need to be looking at things before the kid gets to the first yeah, day Mark, of kindergarten. I'm so with you, right? So if you think about, you know, in my opinion, reading starts as early as in utero, right? Because the fundamental milestones for learning to read are sound processing, right? And, and so if you think about the first four years of reading instruct or like reading development, in my opinion, is oral language, right? Right. So these four, first four years of oral language prepare you to become a really good reader later. 
So we need to make sure that these you know, early stages of reading, which a lot of people may not even agree are part of the reading development process, but I right. think they are, right? That we, that we target those. And right. so it, it goes, you know, uh, and I think one issue is, you know, the training of our preschool teachers, right? They're not, you know, often not, you know, trained in these early literacy or early oral language you know, um, uh, factors. And I think that's, you know, something we need to focus on um, and, and really also focus on, you know, these trajectories and, and when do they diverge and, and, and um, what, are, what are the optimal windows for intervention in the first five years. And so we do a lot of longitudinal studies starting in infancy where we are tracking kids over, you know, now we are in the 10th year of our study, tracking them and see, you know, how do these uh, developmental trajectories differ in the ones who are later struggling with learning to read versus not? And what can we do and how early can we do this? So, um, can I um, just raise a question yeah, that was in the, related to this kind of in the chat? So thinking about then screening kids who are coming to school with maybe less oral language experience or, you know, whatever it is, that does that factor into that, that like, Somebody was asking, should we wait till like some kindergarten teaching exposure happens? Like what, will we catch things that are not a problem? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like we'll catch things that will be remediated by, you know, as soon as they've, if they've had a few months of school, then if you screened them then versus right when they entered school, is there gonna be, like, is there recommendation yeah, for that? That's a really good question, Molly, but I don't think that we actually, you know, do a really great job remediating these kids that are coming into kindergarten not being ready for kindergarten, right? Yeah. If you right. look at all the longitudinal studies and all the, you know, low, low socioeconomic status, kids who had less, you know, child-directed speech, children who had less conversational terms, the outcomes are worse, right? Uh, and so I feel like, yes, it can, you know, help a bit, uh, uh, but it, it, it's it's much better if we, you know, uh, uh, move it earlier. Um, but it will be hard because it's so a uh, defractioned environment, right? Um, uh, uh, early on, the kids are either at home or in preschool or, you know, uh, move around a lot. So, um, I, but I think, you know, if we can also get a picture of what are their strengths and weaknesses the first six weeks they come into kindergarten, we can then more target uh, the instruction and, and you know, maybe intervention in the higher tiers. Uh, uh, I think that's of really great importance. And that means we need to include oral language in the early screening process for sure. Yeah, so um, we do. We do, and um, two points. One is, um, I, I think that the first question to ask when a child is struggling with beginning reading is, you know, this this problem, the child's difficulties may not have to do with reading per se. They may be secondary to things related to spoken language, because think of all the ways that spoken language is involved in getting into reading. It has to do with understanding the structure of spoken words. It has to do with vocabulary and understanding meaningful language. It has to do with, um, um, uh, you know, phonological awareness and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and being able to produce utterances in a fluent manner. I mean, ran and, and non-word repetition, these are things about speech production. So when a child is struggling, my first, in, in an 
at a young age, my first question is, what's their spoken language like? And, and to what extent is this really a problem about reading per se? Or is it something that's secondary to issues related to spoken language that might very well be addressed, addressable? Um, uh, so um, uh, uh, I, 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 I had a second point, but um, uh, I, I do think absolutely um, we need to be looking at oral language and we need to be tracking it and we need to be considering the fact that it's going to continue to develop through the first, through when the kid gets to school. It, it's not that the you know, simple view of reading says, well, child already knows spoken language. They just need to know about print. Well, the child's spoken language is going to continue to develop. The spoken language of a kindergartner may be sufficient to support learning to read or not, but it's going to continue to grow and develop. And so uh, it's not as though we can put the spoken language issues aside just because reading instruction has begun. Um, the other thing I was going to say was, I am very, very reticent to, to, to go down the path that says, if we just wait and give the kids some proper instruction, they'll catch up. Because some kids will, some kids will. However, uh, the, the Many kids won't because um, either because uh, it's very hard to bring them up to speed um, uh, without intensive um, uh, intervention or because we have overconfidence that it's, you know, just um, something that can be easily taken care of. Um, I mean, granting that some kids will catch up, we cannot bet on that because the data suggests that, you know, kids who are starting kindergarten behind in certain things related to spoken language and basic literacy skills, the, the gaps increase, they don't go get smaller. So uh, I, I just don't feel comfortable at all saying, let's just wait, because this if we do a good job with this kid in kindergarten, then they're gonna catch up. Even if I, we grant that some kids will, that's not good enough because those kids who are not catching up it gets harder and harder to get them back on track. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Mark. Um, I think, you know, it, it, but it, but, you know, what is dangerous, and I think there is, you know, a lot of discussion around this is that we just implement screening and think it will fix everything, right? And it will not. It, it, I think it's really important to state this that just, you know, putting a screening instrument uh, in the schools, you could screen the whole world if you don't do anything in response to it, if you don't have a clear pathway and a clear idea of what you do. And that needs to be tied to, you know, general classroom instruction to tier one, then, you know, it's useless, it's completely useless. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind. And, and I think it comes to mind when you see the, you know, state governments that are mandating screening, for example, um, but what happens not doing anything about what, not, not, not also coupling it to, well, what we're gonna do after the kids get screened in terms of effective sorts of responses. Mm -hmm. So um, screening is one step. Well, screening is an essential, screening, am I saying screening is an essential component, but you know, there, the, the issue of adequate response when a child has been flagged as at risk but someone who, whose path could be altered with appropriate responses and appropriate intervention, the problem is whether we're able to provide that. And, and um, you know, um, that is a huge concern 
uh, as you say, one can screen and do a great job of identifying kids who are at risk, and then what? And yeah, uh, yeah. I think uh, we need to also, you know, there's a there's a lot of um, you know talk right now about how to integrate screening appropriately into the RTI MTSS, and I think that's really important. And there's you know uh, some really great suggestions by you know Jack Fletcher and and colleagues, you know how this can be done with progress monitoring, and you know I uh, I think it's really important that we you know make sure that it's not something that's you know separate. It's not like we have you know um you know uh, a screening and then we have something else that was already there before. I think we need to you know really make sure it's integrated in order to be uh, effective. And we may, we need to make sure that our educators are you know trained uh, in 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 you know deliver the appropriate responses. Um, and that they are also involved in the decision process so that they, they are, you know, stakeholders that we have, that all stakeholders understand what screening means and what the goals of screening are and how to integrate screening in, you know, their current models. Uh, and that includes parents so that you don't have any false expectations. And it also includes administrators uh, 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 and, you know, uh, special educators. We, we would certainly like that, wouldn't we? The, the, the issue is for many of the people who um, tune into these events who are in schools or have been in schools for a long time, um, were in schools, um, you know, they're, they're confronting situations in which people don't want to, I mean, this is really an uphill fight still, you know, like that the child might have um, really be at risk for various reasons that we can um, identify um, and need to get a, a pro appropriate sorts of um, uh, responses. I mean, they're, 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 they're certainly fighting against the idea that there's a condition like dyslexia or, um, or that there's really anything special about, you know, kids who, um, who, uh, you know, there's just kids who who some are, are better at learning to read and some are are, are a poor uh, it, it have more difficulty and uh, uh, education is to, that's a, the teacher's responsibility is to deal with kids and and teach them. That's what teachers do. They deal with children who vary, and they vary um, in terms of uh, how easy it is for them to learn to read or do math or or other things. And so, you know, you just sketched out uh, a whole integrative. All the stakeholders are on the same page. We've shared this information we've got some agreement that you know here's a critical window where paths will change we can do things that are effective for most kids we can fail to do them and have that things cascade get cascadingly worse um but i think in many settings real world settings um where it's still a struggle to get heard when your kid is struggling to to um, try to get them um, uh, intensive intervention that will be appropriate and helpful uh, to get these issues about, you know, variability in children and uh, integrated into instruction and classroom practices. I, I, people in the audience should respond to this because you're out there um, and closer to it than, than any of us are. But, you know, talking to people, it's clear the discussion is still, um, at a very basic level in terms of why yeah, kids I struggle and whether they require any special attention or whether they just need, you know, more books in the home or something. 
I think, Mark, uh, you know, sometimes it helps to go to the brain, right? So while, you know, we will never be able to, like, identify, you know, dyslexia in the brain, I, I don't think so. I, the brain really helps us um, to, to see that uh, there are, you know, we know that there is a, you know, a left hemispheric reading network that is comprised of, like, key components. And we do know that if you look at children who struggle with reading, in the older grades or you know adults that there are certain key characteristics uh, that show how the brain developed differently or you know shows some key alteration what's really important to keep in mind that you know a lot of the research has shown that some of these key alterations are there before they st step into the first day of kindergarten right so they're starting their first day of kindergarten with a you know less uh, uh, um, you know uh, well equipped brain uh, and so this is on a continuum right so it's not like there's one group and there's another group uh, but it's really important to keep in mind that it's there early on so if it's you know something that's there early on it's not something that develops in response to failing to learn to read on a daily basis we we really have you know uh, need to find these kids early these kids have the right to you know uh, 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 receive what they need uh, early on you know it seems so true to me and so obvious and yet it's just dyslexia i mean struggling reading and how to respond to it is an issue calling saying that there's a condition called dyslexia is just in it's a, still a hot button sort of issue in most parts of the country. And it's, there, there, there are people who just can't acknowledge. I don't understand really. Um, your brain evidence doesn't really carry much weight. Yep, there's kids who are gonna vary. Yep, they need some more experience with X or Y. That's why we are, that's what, that's what the, the educator's job is. And, and I guess what I would say is, you know, if teachers are well-prepared, if they have relevant sorts of background, if we do identify kids who are at risk because they're behind in um, one or another critical area, um, then in fact, much more could be done in the classroom and more kids could be, you know, kept on track and so on. But um, if you combine teachers who've been taught that, you know, dyslexia is just an excuse, it doesn't really exist, many have, uh, or who, who, you know, aren't really given um, instruction in like, well, what are the effective ways to deal with these various components that kids seem to be um, having more or less difficulty with? Uh, if, if you combine that lack of knowledge or that, you know, mis, misinf having been mistaught about these things with um, uh, that, that, that makes it much more difficult to deal with the situation and create the conditions that you're talking about, where every kid really does need to be identified, needs to get the kinds of experiences that will allow them to succeed if they can succeed. And frankly, we see lots of kids who um, are struggling, who fall into this, you know, range where um, there's red flags um, and they, they seem to be struggling, um, who benefit from um, better instruction, you know? I mean, I think we've all seen kids who we think are instructional dyslexics, who, who there's nothing wrong with them. There's no underlying kind of condition, but um, they look like a kid who might be dyslexic because the instruction has been poor 
uh, and 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 not emphasizing the right sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, these curriculum disabled, right? Uh, some uh, people call them that. Uh, I think it just illustrates how important it is that you you align the reading instruction in you know general ed in tier one with what's happening. Uh, at the you know special education because if these kids go back into the classroom after being pulled out and receiving the good stuff right and they go back into the classroom and you know have a really poor reading curriculum you know it it will really you know uh, diminish what they just learned you know uh, when they were pulled out so I think it's really important that we keep that in mind and that we fight on both fronts right on yes. the prevention but also on the you know you know how do we make sure that we have the the right instruction in in you know general education in tier one right this yeah. is a this is a concern that people have been raising in the chat. And then you see conversations about this, of course, is that what if screeners leads to people thinking, you know, okay, like we're just gonna focus on these few kids. We're not gonna do an overhaul and change how we're doing instruction for all kids, which in fact, all kids would benefit from better instruction. And and so if, if we have an approach, there's a fear of if screeners get in, introduced, then we're just gonna be focused on those kids and not focused on that actually, you know, the, the line that everybody would benefit, nobody would be harmed by, in, you know, adding more of the research-based instruction. Maybe we could follow up on that point. I mean, so um, so in Wisconsin, and I'm sure this is true else, at least some other places, um, it's been very difficult to actually um, get screening in place. We don't have it in place. and. Um, to do other reasonable things to identify kids who are at risk and provide, you know, make sure, do what we can to um, keep them on track. And um, one of the arguments is um, dyslexics aren't special. There's lots of reasons why children might read poorly. They might read poorly, you know, for environmental reasons that have nothing to do with brain development. And so uh, any, any kind of um, legislation or policies that specifically focus on children with a quote unquote reading disability uh, are is really unfairly devoting resources to a certain minority group, a minority subset of kids. Have any reaction to that? Well, um, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, the screening helps actually with the, you know, the, the, opposite um, um so what 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 happens uh, a, a lot is i i get a lot of calls saying um uh you know now that we have screening in place uh you know how do we do the screening process and then i say so what are you going to do in response to screening and they say uh, oh no i'm not focusing on the response to screening i'm just, you know the law the new law just tells me i need to yes. screen, so i need to be compliant with this right so you have the opposite do you have the like yes screening is in place and you have legislation uh, but then you know you you even have you know the similar poor outcomes in terms of what, what these kids then will get right and so um, uh, I think when you screen and you know uh, the profile for every single individual in your classroom and you know their strengths and weaknesses and you know you know whether they come with good uh, oral uh, language or with poor oral language or you know whether they you know uh, uh, know uh, needs more you know phonological awareness or you know more you know letter sounds letter uh, names 
that will benefit everyone, right? It will benefit everyone. And in, in the model that people have proposed where you like constantly park as monitor, you know, and, and combine these different ideas of, you know, preventive education, you will catch, you know, these kids and it will benefit everyone. Um, but it, as I said before, it is important that we, you know, start integrating these and not treat it as separate entities. Yeah, a crucial point. I think it's a really crucial point and uh, that it be integrated that because there has to be the follow through. And, and also, um, you know, the kinds of things we're talking about are not gonna hurt anybody, right? I mean, we're talking about basic skills, basic things that you need to know in order to pieces that need to get put together uh, to support support reading. And, and um, re regardless of the underlying factors that are combining to place, you know, in for any individual kid, the focus on these major components—oral language, print knowledge, and connections between them, greater knowledge of the things that we use language to talk about, like knowledge of the world—nobody's going to get hurt if they get extra stuff of that sort. I mean, it's not going to actually uh, uh, slow anyone down. So. Um, and, and the risks of not yeah, providing similar. that kind of stuff is huge. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's similar to like, you could compare it with, you know, um, uh, with, you know, let's say ADHD, right? Yes, you don't want to give everyone ADHD uh, uh, um, medication, right? That would be terrible, right? So only the kids who truly, truly need it, you know, may, uh, should get it. But it's it's not the same for it's not the same at all for reading because the 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 instruction that you know want to give children who struggle with reading are not like you know different or qualitative or like you know majorly different from what you know is really good for everyone for learning to read and that has been shown you know before and so it's just really puzzling that. You know, for some reason, we think, you know, we need to treat, you know, one end of the continuum differently than the other other sides. Uh, I, I, I think I think we need to emphasize this, really, because um, I'm not sure that how wide, how much agreement there is uh, in the field about this. I think the research is pretty clear. So what we're talking about, you know, components of reading, elements of reading, parts of reading that work together. It's not just about reading and print, it's about language, it's about knowledge of the world and so on. And um, some kids who are struggling for a variety of reasons, some of them are constitutional, some of them are environmental, they interact in complex ways, kids are struggling. The things that they need to learn are the same. The things that they, the things that the parts that they need to have working are the same. And so it's not as though, you know, having identified a child who has, is struggling with learning to read, we're now gonna take a completely different approach to them than we would for kids who are learning somewhat better, somewhat who are progressing somewhat more rapidly, a lot more rapidly. It's the same system. There may be different time courses. There may be different developmental trajectories. The timing of the, development may differ. It may require different emphases for different kids, but where they have to go is the same. So I think I'm saying the same thing that you are, but trying to emphasize that 
it's a continuum, you know? And so the things that are gonna be good for good readers, it's the same system that we're trying to pull struggling readers into. And so the kinds of instruction, the things that need to be emphasized, the areas where growth needs to be promoted, they're the same. The, the kids' levels may differ, but the things they need to know are the same. And so there's- Yeah, but I think we also need to be you know, uh, careful not to say like, oh, you know, they're all on a continuum. So we sort of all leave them in one classroom and just give them a little bit more and a little bit less, right? So. I think it's really important that there are kids who have severe word reading problems who need, uh, you know, uh, you know, to, you know, one on one that who need, you know, more explicit, who need like, you know, a, a higher frequency, uh, uh, you know, uh, with, you know, highly trained individuals who can provide, you know, more in deep uh, uh, understanding. The, the overall components are the same, but I think it's important that we, keep, you know, also mention that so that it's not just like, oh yeah, we'll just keep them all and we just give one a little bit more and one a little bit less. I think that's important that, you know, th these kids, you know, there's a reason why we, you know, have indeed. tier three, why we have special education, why we have tier two. In, indeed, I guess, totally. I mean, with very, very rare exceptions, uh, the components are the same. And, and, and the is some kids are at risk because of a combination of factors that really is um, making it a lot more difficult. And we are talking about ways of identifying, you know, areas where um, they could be provided with additional experiences that would help a great deal and indeed will benefit a lot of kids. And, um, um, and, and indeed, you know, how much intervention, how much additional attention they require is, is, um, is, uh, is going to vary, but we're still talking about developing the same system with, with rare exceptions. I mean, there, there could be some very unusual sorts of brain organization that will require the child to have some real workarounds because the standard sort of system that everyone knows about um, is just not developing for some reason. But I, I think at this point, those cases are exceedingly rare. The data are not pointing to a large number of kids of that sort. More so, it's this standard sort of neural systems for reading are not, not developing on the same timetable. There are reasons, identifiable reasons for it, and there are things that can be done. So Mark, can I ask you a question for the, yeah. uh, at the end? So do you think that Dyslexia is preventable. Oh, gee, I was going to ask you that. So um, <laughs> I started. At, I, I asked you this first. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what was it? Was it uh, one of the Libermans or someone who said, you know, every kid is born dyslexic, and then some grow out of it. Um, so. Um, um, I think. Um, I think that the number of kids who are struggling with reading is excessively high. And that the origins of the difficulties are from birth to five. And that there are things that could be done during that period, which would indeed suffice to keep them from falling into, well, keep them from struggling. So, um, do I, here's, I, I hate giving a really short, like, 
we know. sound bite, sound bite answer, I know. But no, but the thing is, look, the underlying kids vary. The underlying conditions, the underlying strengths and weaknesses they have, the underlying experiences they have, these things differ in degree. There are kids who could fall off the rails, who really, for whom we make things worse because we haven't actually dealt with things before they get to school. We haven't done all the sort of preventive things that you were talking about. So do I think that there are cases of dyslexia that are preventable? Absolutely, absolutely. Do I think there are more kids who could do better and progress more rapidly and um, um, really not fall behind and, and really, um, really become part of those 65% of the kids who are only at basic reading skills or less? Do I think we should be doing better with them? Yeah. Do I think that they had, their problems were, many of them, their problems were preventable? Yeah. I don't think 65% of the kids have dyslexia. Yeah. I, so so my, my general answer is it's a dimensional condition. These, the underlying things that contribute to success or failure vary across kids. So it's going to depend. There's a lot of kids for whom better experiences before they get to school and in the first couple of years of school, I think that we would, they would stay on, on track. And, and yes, I think in a sense, their, 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 their problems are preventable. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, uh, I definitely uh, agree with you. I think um, that, you know, um, we really need to do a better job in um, moving from a reactive to a proactive model. Totally. And I think that, you know, the examples in medicine have shown us, you know, that you can, you know, prevent diseases and you can prevent, uh, you know, struggling reading. Um, and I mean, so I feel like it's not, it's not like in every child, but I think we should also mention that it's definitely a multifactorial uh, ideology, right? So there's the indeed. causes are genetic, uh, uh, a combination of genetic environments, the you know brain perception, cognition. This all like you know, creates one unique child, um, and um, uh, that's really important to keep in mind. There is not just one you know cause. No, not and one. the causes are not all or none. They vary in severity or, or, or impact. And so, you know, there are people who are more mildly affected or people who are more greatly affected. Um, nonetheless, if we're talking about, you know, doing better with a larger percentage of kids, look, there are kids who are going to struggle because they have a combination of circumstances and conditions that really make it very difficult to read and require a lot of very um, focused and intensive uh, intervention with some continuity over time. However, it's a dimensional condition. It varies in degree. People, the, the factors that, that are affecting performance vary in degree. And so th there's a huge range of kids for whom eh, we could actually, if we understood some of the major underlying components, we under, did some uh, continuing um, uh, uh, appraisal of the kids and where they're at, we have focused our, um, instructional and other activities on the areas appropriately. Yeah, I think we could do a lot better with many kids. And, and in that sense, many of the pre-reading problems that we see in older kids were preventable. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think now with COVID, right, I feel like I'm, I'm really, really worried that we will have even more children who will struggle with learning to read. 
because they may not have, you know, uh, gone to, you know, preschool, they may not have, you know, get the oral language uh, that they needed. Uh, they may not have get, uh, gotten the, the early, um, um, you know, uh, you know pre-literacy skills. So I think, you know, this and, you know, keeping in mind that stress, trauma, neighborhood factors, um, poverty, you know, sure. also play in a really important role. We, we need to make sure we find these kids early and maximize the joy of learning to read. It, indeed, I, you know, maximize success because sex, sex is really motivating. The, the other thing I've, I've mentioned is, you know, it takes a certain number of learning opportunities, right? Like learning experiences to acquire the knowledge that, that, um, that supports reading. And um, there are things that can interfere with that, like COVID has, and, and also other kinds of uh, environmental or instructional uh, situations and so on. And so, you know, kids have to have enough of the relevant sorts of experiences to get these skills. And um, yeah, the timetable has been thrown off for a lot of kids because of COVID and, and, and um, finding ways to give kids enough experiences that allow them to build the reading system by embedding reading in other kinds of uh, educational activities, by using software, by using, you know, by looking at kids uh, in pre-K, um, uh, providing really intensive sort of language experiences, for example, in pre-K, uh, giving kids enough learning opportunities um, to be able to build the knowledge that they're, they're going to need. Um, and, and yeah, these are really serious concerns. Oh my, we, we, hopefully there'll be some savings, right? So, you know, children knew something about, had reached a certain point in what they knew about reading and math, and then maybe there was some slippage because of this is bad year. But, you know, there's also savings if we actually, um, in terms of getting back to where they were, hopefully. So, um, yeah, it's a tough situation. And education is really more so providing appropriate sorts of opportunities for the kids to learn and activities for them to learn is so crucial. I, I'm sorry, I'm ranting and pre preaching to people who already know this, but um, it's a big concern for sure that things could not get worse. Um, do we have some other questions from people that we that about things that we might have um, glossed well, over? So one thing I think that I've been seeing in the chat is you know maybe we could address the where should we screen? And so I think there's been some really interesting uh, things that happened in the last couple of months or years. So yeah. uh, you know traditionally, right, universal screening or you know screening for. Uh, reading difficulties, dyslexia has been done in educational setting or proposed for the educational setting. But, you know, we've been doing a lot of pushing of pediatricians um, where we say, you know, you need to, you know, uh, screen for learning disabilities um, in, you know, among or within the uh, early, you know, checkup system, right? So at age four or five, maybe six, even earlier when you screen for uh, oral language. And so that, that has led to some significant pushback where pediatricians say, well, you know, we do screen for autism spectrum disorder and for ADHD because it you know, primarily requires a medical intervention, but uh, learning disabilities primarily require um, you know, educational intervention. So it's you know, not within our you know, uh, area. Um, so I think we need to get you a know, really push back and, and, and have more pressure 
on, on, on this because, you know, if you think about anxiety, depression rates, if you think about, you know, vocational, economic, you know, mental health outcomes, that's really important. The other factor that I would love to discuss is libraries. So community settings, right? So we've been, you know, doing some pilots now in community settings where we say, can we maybe offer screening days in a community setting and then link it to parent training or link it to some of the books that you could bring home. And that's not meant that you can, you know, uh, prevent uh, a reading difficulty with a library model, but you can add to it. And these, you know, smaller steps uh, uh, may, you know, uh, um, add to the bigger picture. So I think we need to start thinking outside of the box, social workers, speech and language pathologists, who could also aid in identification of children at risk for language and reading um, uh, difficulties. I, I totally agree and, and think, you know, this is a, been a, this is just a classic problem. And it's, uh, so, you know, uh, the um, pediatricians will say, um, you know, well, it's an educational condition because, you know, I, I don't have any way to treat it. I mean, there's no, you know, uh, medication or anything that I could uh, supply here or, you know, uh, procedure that would change things. Um, so this isn't really kind of within my purview, it's an educational issue. But then on the education side, um, where people have heard that, you know, dyslexia is a brain reading conditions, you know, learning disorder. Uh, conditions that interfere with reading, these things have brain bases. Well, that makes it a medical condition. And so, you know, we can't legally actually uh, address um, things that are, um, have this uh, medical basis um, because um, they're not, that's not in our, our purview. So uh, then the kids get, who's, who's, who's addressing the issue because the ball is getting passed back and forth. Um, how, I can't think like a pediatrician, but um, these are conditions that affect children's health and well-being, their 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 you know their their ability to thrive, and and uh, surely they deal with other conditions that are you know partly environmental, partly biological, uh, for which um, they are part of the solution. I, I assume that there are also pressures given the way that billing is done and um, you know, there's gotta be a physician's assistant or someone else in the, in the office who can do the administration and so on. But um, I, I totally agree. Uh, and on the other side, there's the community involvement where you know, um, we, we need the parents. We, people typically focus on parents, but what about the community leaders? For example, uh, in many communities, it's, uh, it's a church leader. It's a. It's the. Uh, it's a, a religious figure. Uh, 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 having or other social organizations in the community that really are important. Um, those folks being on board and being part of directing kids towards resources, towards preschool, towards other, um, towards the library, towards uh, in directions that are going to um, be beneficial and lower the risk that the kid is going to struggle uh, and raise the probability that they're going to succeed. Uh, we, those folks are part of the solution as well. I mean, they are, they're Lead, their leadership and 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 guidance on this in their communities seems to me is a really crucial thing, and I don't know how much of that goes on. I really don't. Right, but that's so that we've got opportunities here, right? Mm -hmm. that's I mean, the there are things. A lot more work to do. Yeah. 
Isn't what it you, so? What do you want to say? Oh, no, I was just saying, like, we've been talking about the birth to five, the what they're entering school with. And this is, you know, this, this is, this is how to get to those, get to kids earlier. Right. Yeah, I it's, think... hard to, it's hard to get to these kids, right? So, so I feel like the pediatricians may be one of the person who, you know, may see right. a lot of them, hopefully. Uh, and then the community, I think, you know, you know, if you think about library or think about churches or, you know, other um, uh, places of worship or, uh, you know, play groups, et cetera. So um, I think, you know, we need to involve the community more in this. And, and so um, I just taught a class where we were also really interested in, you know, how can we extend uh, accommodations or interventions that are, you know, traditionally uh, be done in the educational setting into the community setting. And I give you an example, right? So these kids may get accommodations, let's say they get help with, you know, more time to read or someone helps them uh, with the comprehension, etc. And then they, you know, step outside of the classroom and then they go to after school or they go to a soccer practice or a library or a chess club or whatever. And there's nothing there because, you know, often the, the, there there's no um, advocacy for you know, learning disability in a community setting. And so I feel like we need to do a much better job in doing this. And so we've been thinking about some initiatives to like you know, really raise you know, awareness and make, it sure, make sure that you're more inclusive in all settings for uh, children who learn differently. Really, I mean, so, so many times the recommendations are things that, you know, assume, for example, that there's somebody in the home who knows the language, who has um, the time to actually um, work with the kid. Uh, you know, a, a, a lot of times we, we, the, the solutions are, the things that would be helpful to kids are increasing in inequalities because it can't be assumed that there's a person in the home who knows the language or, or who isn't working three jobs and, you know, can, has the time to actually, an ability to uh, function, uh, read to the kid, provide feedback and so on. Um, I, I just don't feel like we can lay it all at the, at the feet of, um, uh, here's things that parents should do better. Um, and if they do, I mean, we do want to appeal to parents and be, to give them as much knowledge, information as we can, because parents want to do what's right for their kids. And many times they don't know. So yes, getting parents involved is really crucial. But there's also, it can't just be that because in some cases, the home environment isn't the most, the, the, there, there, there need to be other ways for the kid to get um, experience that go in addition to the home environment. Otherwise, we're just going to be, you know, increasing differences and, you know, multiplying the differences. And there are community groups, community organizations, community um, institutions, which really hopefully could be much more oriented towards language, towards reading, towards all these pre-literacy things that, um, that are, are so crucial. Well, did we settle everything? We have a lot more work to do, Mark uh, and Molly. <laughs> what do you think? Should we tell people that, you know, we're making pretty good progress here in terms of understanding the components that really come together, the ways in which they vary, the ways in which experience can be structured to help kids, that the ability to identify 
kids who might need more attention in certain areas at a younger age has improved. And so, you know, I think there is a lot to build on here. It's more getting the relevant participants to pull together, um, which has been hard. Yeah, I agree. I think now what you know what we have to do is disseminate, right, and integrate and and bridge uh, the science and practice, like you know the title of your your podcast. Um, I, I think that's you know the next big steps, but it also requires you know translational uh, uh, work. It requires uh, researchers who can actually you know make these uh, translations, and it it it. it it most importantly uh, requires teams of uh, uh, researchers, educators, funders, um, uh, and uh, administrators uh, to work together and, and not have like a you know, top down, oh, the researchers know everything and we're gonna tell the educators how to do this, right? That's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to all come together and see, okay, this is what we know how can we now bring it into you know, the schools, into the classrooms and work together and, and also leave room for error and room for like, you know, correction of our course and, 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 and then evaluate how did this work? So really um, you know, work on you know, prevention science and work on you know, uh, um, uh, 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 implementation science. It's, it's gonna be very crucial uh, in the next you know, phase of this. Yeah, I mean, th that's really why, I mean, we have these discussions because they're meant to be, you know, one of the kinds of steps people, one way of trying to bridge science and education. I, I, and, and obviously it's, we, we, need, we need a lot more. And, and, and we're, we're trying to avoid of the situation in which the expert says, well, here's what we've learned from the science, this is what you need to do because, um, it's, it's not as simple as that. And, and also, I, I just wanna say one other thing though. You know, I've written about this and said, yeah, we need more research that's really about you know, things that happen in the classroom. But, um, and that's true. You know, like, is this program for teaching phonics effective? I, what about doing it this way? Uh, uh, there, there's a variety of kinds of um, work at the intersection of cognition and education that, we, we need more of it and we need funders to pay for it. Um, however, I wanna say, we have a lot of science that tells us things about reading, about children, about learning and development that already tell us many things about what will make a program more or less effective. We can speak to things that will be more or less advisable, even if we don't have a study that talks about this particular child in this particular classroom with this teacher who has a particular background who, in a school district where they happen to be using a particular approach this year. So on the one hand, I, I stuck my neck out and said, yeah, more cognitive researchers need to be doing research that's closer to the situations that occur in, 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 in efficacy and, and so on as it occurs in, in, in classrooms. But I don't want to lose track of the fact that we know about huge factors that really are important to becoming a reader and properties of kids' experience that are going to be more or less beneficial. So um, notwithstanding the need for- But you for, know what, Mark? Yeah. 
I think we need to also make sure that higher education teacher training programs know about this, right? So it, it just doesn't make it up there. Um, and no. so we are still creating, and now it's graduation phase, we are creating teachers and more teachers and more teachers who are not trained in, you know, the science uh, that we know behind reading and that are not, you know, and so this will, this will, you know, be, you know, not useful for, for anyone. So I feel like we need to put, you know, pressure. We need to make sure that the science makes it up to the higher education uh, uh, places. And um, maybe we need to change, I think you know, um, the way we, you know, um, uh, do uh, um, accreditation or how we, you know, make sure that someone uh, gets a teacher license to make sure that you know these these uh, higher ed uh, institutions uh, feel the pressure of adding some of the signs and and a lot of them already do but you know a lot of them also don't i think education higher education has a lot to answer for and that change has to come from there too and that that's another element of you know really doing a better job and actually just to follow up on it you know we can talk about the science of reading. We can talk about science of reading. You know, that's no reading researchers talk about the science of reading. We just talk about research that's relevant to reading and is informative wherever it comes from. But, you know, um, if people don't have a lot of background, if it isn't part of their training, then when we do talk about research, it can get taken in some directions that really are not um, sanctioned by what we know. In other words, you know, it's not, yeah, this stuff should be part of people's preparation for the job. It's relevant to how kids learn. But there's lots of interest right now in finding out more about research, what yeah. it has to say about these issues. And there, the potential for distortion here is huge. It's happening already. The potential for taking this research and um, reducing it to some cliches is really huge. And um, that is another area where we have to do more to counteract that. Yeah, but also professional development, right? Because there is teachers uh, who are now in the schools or who have been in the schools for you know, a long time, and they are doing a, a really great job. But you know, the science of or the science behind reading has really changed and has really made progress. So we need to yeah. make sure that this actually makes it in real time into, you know, the, uh, the, the classrooms. And, and, you know, we need to come up with novel ideas of how to provide professional development so that people don't just sit and, you know, hear a lecture, but maybe absolutely you know, through online learning through to like no. YouTube, through to like maybe TikToks or some other way of like really? really getting it, you know, into, you know, teachers hands and, and teacher knowledge without, you know, saying, forget about everything you learned, you know, this is how you need to do it now, because that's yeah. not what we are trying to do. We are just trying no. to, you know, infuse, you know, the, the really good educational practices with you know the the science behind reading that we have learned in the last you know twenty five years, yeah. Right, and there'll be a teacher who's going to have to who can make use of that information, dealing with his or her students in and and where they're at. Um, well, thanks really uh, for for everything. Thanks so much for your work. Thanks for um, your insights, and um, thanks for joining us this afternoon. 
Molly? Well, thank you so much for having me. I, you know, I wish we could, you know, go now on and have, you know, a nice glass of wine or the dinner together, but, you know, we'll have to put, uh, postpone this for another time. Okay, well, thanks again. Yeah, thank you. We'll link to some of your work and things on the website and the recording will be up. And um, yeah, we won't be here next week, but in two weeks, we'll be talking with Margie Gillis about literacy, how and teacher coaching. So that's kind of moving into that professional development thing. What do we do for teachers who are already out there? Say so, hi to uh, Maggie. Uh, um, she's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Nadine. Have a great day. Thanks, Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this reading meeting recording. You can find more information about past and future reading meetings on our website. We hope you'll join us for future meetings. Thank you.